Welcome to Write Your Book in a Flash with Dan Janelle, the only podcast where you'll learn how successful people just like you have grown their businesses, expanded their influence, and made more money by writing a book. On each episode, you'll learn the inside secrets to help you create a book that can serve as a powerful marketing tool to skyrocket your business. I'm your host, Dan Janelle. I help thought leaders, business executives, and entrepreneurs write their books. To find out more, go to writeyourbookinaflash.com. Welcome, everyone. I'm delighted to welcome my guest today, Todd Churches. How are you, Todd? I'm great, Dan. Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, my pleasure, Todd. You have such a great background. You teach at NYU, you consult, and you have a new book out. So tell us about your journey. How did you get there? Uh, sure. Uh, I was an overnight success. It only took me 50-something years to get to that point. But uh, um, yeah, so I basically, my company is called Big Blue Gumball, based in New York City. We do management and leadership consulting, training, and coaching. And I'm also an adjunct professor of leadership at NYU in Columbia. I teach leadership in the HR master's program at NYU. I teach in a variety of programs at Columbia, including their MFA theater program, where I teach leadership for Broadway stage managers. Tough time to be in the Broadway business right now during the pandemic, but, uh, you know, you got to keep learning and growing and, and laying the foundation for when things start to get back to normal. And uh, in addition, I did my first TEDx talk last year, which was cool. And then I, uh, my book just uh, came out in May of this year, May 2020. So it's only been out a few months now. Fantastic. Now, you have a background in television in L.A., television and film and such like that. Tell us about that and how that influenced your thinking for your book. Sure. Well, I actually talk about this in my TEDx talk where as a kid, I had my goal, my career aspirations when people said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I wanted to be Superman. Uh, But my backup plan was to be Batman. So if I couldn't be Superman, then I would be Batman. But if I couldn't be Superman or Batman, my goal was to work in television in some capacity. I just loved television. I was obsessed with television, as many of us baby boomers were. Right. Um, So everything I did, I was actually an English literature major in, in college. Um, my claim to fame in high school, this is, shows what a nerd I was, I played some baseball and basketball too, but I read the complete works of Shakespeare by the time I was 18. Hmm. So by the time I graduated, uh, I didn't understand Romeo and Juliet. I got hooked on Julius Caesar, and then I read Macbeth, King Lear, and Hamlet, and I just kept going. So, um, <laughs> so that was my claim to fame in high school. So I was always a big reader, writer, and television person. And then I, my first job out of college was at Ogilvy and Mather Advertising in New York. I wanted to get into the account exec type of role, but I ended up in the media division, which was a great foot in the door, but that's a numbers job, and I'm the farthest thing from a numbers person. So it was a lot of calculating of ratings and shares and placing commercials. So I did that for a year. I always ask my students to guess my starting salary, which was, any guesses what my starting salary was in 1985 as a media buyer at Ogilvy & Mather? Uh, 10000 Very close, 12000 So it's very hard to live in New York City, even in those days, at 12000 a year, right, after taxes. That pretty much is is nothing. So I packed my bags and my cape and flew out to Hollywood at age 24. Uh, Didn't know anyone, didn't have any connections. I had two college roommates who moved out there. And I just started getting a series of temp jobs and part-time jobs. I worked for Michael Nesmith of the Monkees in delivering mail in the mailroom. Mm-hmm. There's no more mailroom anymore because there's no email room, right? So <laughs> I don't know what the uh, entry-level job is for kids these days. Um, I worked for Michael Nesmith of the Monkees. I did an internship at Aaron Spelling, uh, just putting scripts together for Dynasty. But it was exciting to be on that lot and see Linda Evans and you know, John Collins. Then I was in casting for Columbia Pictures Television, and I got laid off because of the writer's strike. I was temping at Disney, um, and I ended up working for a comedy writer, producer for a year, and then his deal ended, and then I got a job at CBS. So my goal was to end up at a TV network, and I finally made it. 
unfortunately, I had a boss from hell who made my life miserable every single day. And um, one of the things I say is my book is dedicated first to my wife, secondly to my parents, and thirdly to all the horrible, horrible bosses without whom none of this would have ever been possible. So <laughs> without those bad bosses, I probably never would have gone down the path I did and ended up writing this book. So turning lemons uh, you know, into lemonade. Um, so that was my career in television. And uh, after 10 years in L.A., I moved back to New York. Um, I also worked in the theme park business as a project manager. But, I won't, but that also led to my visual thinking. Thinking of everything as an experience, the visual part of things. Um, I did a project in China, and I talk about this in both my book and my TED Talk, where no one spoke. We didn't speak Chinese. They didn't speak English. So I started napkin sketching. I started just drawing things out. It was almost like playing Pictionary and charades to try to communicate things. And I realized that we not only communicate through our words verbally, but through pictures, imagery, body language. And that's kind of the foundation for my visual thinking-based approach. And my book is called Visual Leadership, Leveraging the Power of Visual Thinking in Leadership and in Life. And it's all about how do we use visual thinking and visual communication to get our ideas out there into the world so that other people can see what we're saying. That's the foundation of everything that I do. That's a fantastic story. And I want to delve deeper into the... Uh, visual aspects, and I saw that on your website. I thought that was a great story. Can you give us the actual example that you used on your website or anywhere else of how you use pictures to convey images and ideas and thoughts? Yeah, sure. Well, that first time was in, in China, as I just mentioned. So we had a the company made robotic animal figures, life-size uh, animal figures, audio animatronics like you would see in Disneyland or Universal Studios. So we made life-size elephant, sheep, and cows that were placed in a cultural theme park in Shenzhen, China. I went over there with a crew of two guys, an engineer and a, a technician. Um, and my job as the project manager was to get this done and be the liaison with the client. And as I just said, um, there was a failure to communicate, as they used to say in the Cool Hand Luke, if you remember that movie, what we have here is a failure to communicate. And the way of communicating was through pictures and drawing and hand signals and pointing and gesturing. And so even though I really couldn't draw, I was able to sketch out a hammer or a screwdriver or a tape measure, and we somehow got it done. So that was like a light bulb went off saying, you know what? You know, we communicate visually, but it didn't really resonate until years later when I actually started to apply that. But that was the first time that I started thinking about, hey, communication is harder than it looks, and especially when you're communicating across cultures, um, visuals gives you a little bit of a, you know, another way to, to get your ideas across. That's great. Let, let's, let's focus in now on coaches, consultants, speakers, and entrepreneurs and how they can use more pictures to communicate effectively. Uh, I've had a couple of uh, people on, on the show who have talked about their experiences with pictures, and I read a book by Russell Brunson, uh, uh, and he, he used little stick figures, cartoon figures in his book, Traffic Secrets and Expert Secrets, that really affected a different part of my brain. And so like, I got it, even though I read it, and I'm a visual learner, uh, and I understand words perfectly well, when I saw the pictures of some guy pointing at something, or like your screwdriver analogy, it's like, oh, I got it on a totally different level. So I don't know if you want to go into the neurophysics of uh, the neuroscience of how, how this works, or if you just want to give us a yeah. few examples of how a consultant can explain their processes using pictures or uh, any other kinds of tools. So teach us. Sure. Well, I'll leave the brain science to the brain scientists and not go there, but mm -hmm. just on a practical level, um, research has shown that there's a reason that the saying a picture is worth a thousand words is universal across all cultures. Um, 
Napoleon, there's a quote by him, it was said in French, not in English, but he said, a good sketch is better than a long speech. So across cultures and throughout history, um, there's a saying by a Confucian philosopher that hearing something once isn't as, hearing something a thousand times isn't as good as seeing it once. So again, there's all kinds of variations going back thousands of years of the power of pictures. If you, in fact, if you think about it, cave drawings, right, that exist from 40,000 years ago, um, Sketches of here's a bison, here's fire, here's a guy with a spear chasing after the bison. You know, those are visuals. That's a visual way of communicating. So we've been doing it for thousands of years. And I think emojis and emoticons are the modern day technological extension of cave drawings, right? <laughs> if I give a thumbs up on your, on your LinkedIn post or put uh, a heart, you know, we know what that means, right? You, there's no words, there's no test, text, but we all know what a smile face means. Um, a smile is universal across all languages, right? When you smile. And even that, I started writing a blog post about that. Uh, I'll, I'll be talking about that in my NYU class. When we're wearing masks due to the pandemic, we're actually, it's actually a filter to our smiling, right? So one, this woman smashed into me with her shopping cart at Trader Joe's. I looked at her and I smiled like, no problem. But my mask was covering the smile. And she gave me a dirty look, like <laughs> as if I was giving her a dirty look. When I smiled like not a problem, but we, we're not, so we're missing out on that. So that's a perfect example. It has nothing to do with drawing or illustrations. That's just facial expression, body language, eye contact. These are all ways we communicate visually that we don't even think about, right? It's so intuitive and ingrained. Babies look up at their parents and there's eye contact there that communicates love or, or caring, right? So um, that's just who we are as, as human beings and as people. Um, I use the words attention, comprehension, and retention. So when you use visuals, whether it's visual language or pictures, it increases our attention because when you're showing someone something, here, let me show you something, you're going to get someone's attention. Comprehension, when someone looks at something, they're going to understand it better than if you just told them about it, right? I can explain to you how to get to my house in New York City from the airport, or I could send you a map, right? Which is going to be more effective to help you get there? Probably the map. When you combine the map with the explanation, it's even more powerful, right? So that increases understanding. And the third one, attention, comprehension, and retention. Retention, when used visuals, it increases memory and recall. So if you've seen a picture of something, it will be etched into, burned into a, a part of your brain in a way that text doesn't, that text doesn't resonate or stay there as long and it's, not, and it's harder to retrieve. So that's the reason that visuals are so powerful. Um, and consultants can use it, trainers, presenters. Um, we've all seen really boring PowerPoint presentations, right, where people put up their, their death by bullet point thing where it's just that people read off the screen. The best presenters, Steve Jobs and Steph Godin and people, they use images, very little text. They use images and they become the focus. They're not just reading off a, off a, you know, a PowerPoint slide as if it's a teleprompter. So we've all seen bad and good presentations of all kind. The best ones tend to be the ones that have a visual component to them. Mm -hmm. And how would we use that in a book? For example, say a process. Yeah, well, um, in my book, um, which we could talk about a little more later, but each chapter of the book has a visual image or a model. So it's either a literal image, a picture of something, it's a drawing, or it's a metaphor, or there's some kind of model or framework. And I was looking at your book, write, what, write your book in a flash. Painting by numbers is a metaphor. Paint your masterpiece, a palette, those are all metaphors, right? Mm -hmm. Your 10 steps to writing a book is a framework. Your pyramid model, the five levels of thought leadership books, is a framework or model. It's filled with stories. You're, you show a book staircase with your, with your 10 steps to writing a book. That's a visual image. So right in there, whether you thought about it or not, 
you are using all four of my categories, which are visual imagery, mental models, metaphors, and storytelling. So there you go. You got an A in my class for your book just based on that. <laughs> Get my MBA from you. I, I, I feel great. This is wonderful. We're doing Zoom learning, and I got my, my first class, my first grade. I love it. Fantastic. Um, now, some people are probably listening to this and saying, well, I can't even draw a straight line. How could I possibly use a visual? What would you tell them? Yeah. Well, I usually start with saying, if you ask a group of first graders, how many of you could draw, how many raise their hand? Oh, all, all of them, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. You ask a group of business professionals, how many of you can draw? Very few. So have we lost our ability to draw or our confidence, right? I'm sure if we had removed the I can't draw, I call it ICD, I can't draw, draw syndrome. If we just remove that constraint, we could all draw. In fact, when I do my workshops, I take people through a drawing exercise where they draw a straight line, a square, a circle, and a triangle. I'm like, there you could draw, right? <laughs> so... Just as I did in China, I'm not a great artist. I'm not a good illustrator, and yet I was able to draw something in the shape of a hammer that looked close enough to a hammer that they knew what I wanted, right? Um, so you don't have to be a graphic designer. You don't have to be a visual, graphic recorder. Um, also, when I talked about the four ways of visual thinking, when you use visual imagery, you could use a picture. You could use a PowerPoint slide, a picture from a magazine. To, so you don't necessarily need to know how to draw. It helps if you do, but that's a bonus. Same thing with frameworks or models. You could draw a process diagram. You could draw the steps of a process. If you think about it, your company org chart is a, it's a visual model, right? So if you could draw a box, put your name in it, and then fill out who works with you or above and behind, and you sketch out a 360-degree org chart, you've just created a visual model. So I would just remove the I can't draw. You don't, it's not a test of your drawing ability. It's a test of your ability to get an idea out of your head into someone else's so that they can see what you're saying. So those first two categories about using literal visuals that you take in through your eye. But the other two, you take in through your ear. So they're auditory in their visuality is something I say. When you tell stories and you use metaphors, you're painting a picture with words, but you literally do not have to pick up a pen to do that. Right. So some people prefer the visual with the eye. Some people prefer the visual with the ear. But any of us can. It's almost like describing a movie. If someone says, Dan, how was your day today? And you say, you wouldn't believe what happened to me today. And you tell us the story. We're going to picture that in our mind's eye, a, a term that was coined by Shakespeare in Hamlet when he saw, he saw the ghost of his father. I think I see my father in my mind's eye. Um, we're basically painting a picture with words and people are recreating that story in our mind's eye as if we're watching a movie. That is visual thinking and visual communication in action. And we all do it. We just don't realize we're doing it. So when you have visual leadership in your awareness frame of reference now you can do it more strategically and intentionally and more successfully fantastic that's a great overview of this concept i'm sure people have a lot more confidence now and want to read your book which i guess is available everywhere because you got a real publishing deal from simon and schuster tell us how you got a real publishing deal which is really really hard to do today believe it or not it is i believe it i believe it <clears throat> years ago about probably five years ago i was uh, a major publisher, a, um, an editor from Wiley reached out to me and said they were really interested. They love my writing. They love my blog posts. And we did a, worked on a proposal, and I made it through the last stage, but I didn't have a large enough platform, so mm -hmm. I got killed off. Right? They wanted to, I only had like about 1,000 LinkedIn connections at the time. They wanted at least 5,000, if not 10 or 15. Not necessarily that everyone's going to buy your book, but they want to know that you have a foundation and a built-in audience who will at least be aware of it, right? So fast forward years later, I built my followership to over 5,000. Um, I was at a leadership conference, and I met this guy named Rob Salafia, who's become a good friend. He wrote the book, Leading from Your Best Self. And um, I met him at this conference, and, and I asked him, how did you get your book published? And he 
introduced me to his agent, Ken Lazat, up in Boston, and he's based in Boston too. So even though those are two Boston guys, and I'm a big Yankees fan from New York, <laughs> we found a way to make it work. We, you know, one of the things I say is you can hate someone because they hate they love the opposite team, or you can love them because they're also a baseball fan. I think you're a baseball <laughs> fan from what I can tell behind you, right? So either you either join together based on the commonality, or you consider that person your mortal enemy because you're rooting for opposite teams. Anyway, we got to be good friends. Ken Lazat took me on. We worked for a few months on the proposal. In fact, the proposal was almost as long as the book at some point, at a certain point, because it was ended up being like a 40-page book proposal. Pitched it to all the major publishers, and a few said yes, maybe, um, came close with a few, and then finally Post Hill Press um, said yes, and the distributor is Simon & Schuster. So my book is now published and distributed by Post Hill Press, Simon & Schuster. Um, So it's very exciting to have, uh, you know, Self-publishing was another option. I looked into hybrid as well, so I did, did my homework. Each has its pros and cons, right, in terms of how much control you have, the monetary factor. So, without, so, But for me, I wanted a hardcover book. I wanted it to be in full color, and I was hoping to get a major publisher, mainly because I'm at NYU and Columbia. So just from an academic point of view, it just has more weight, literally mm-hmm. and figuratively, to have a major publisher behind it and to, again, be hardcover and in full color. So I was able to get all of that. And it's been great. I've been very happy with the whole experience. Super. That's great. Uh, and how are you using your book to get clients? Well, it just came out a few months ago, and it's in the middle of a pandemic, and it's <laughs> yeah. the summer. So the main way is I'm using it to it's, – it's two things. It's visibility and credibility, right? So writing the book um, – what was interesting was this. My book was scheduled to launch in May. I had book signings lined up. I had – Key, major keynotes, workshops. I was supposed to do a big keynote in Denver for, for um, 100 people. Luckily, they paid in advance and bought 80 copies of my book in advance. So I got paid, so that's mm-hmm. good. And it's been postponed till spring of 2021. Um, but I was thinking, how am I going to get, you know, is, the, is a pandemic the worst time in the world to get your book out there? And, you know, and it turned out not to be the worst, but in some ways the best, because between social media and Zoom and people being at home, I think I have more global exposure, visibility, and, and, and connections than I ever would have had if we were all in, normal, in the normal real world, right? So between social media, between LinkedIn and Facebook, I've been on about 25 different podcasts, make it 26 with you today, mm-hmm. um, over the last three months, and with different audiences, um, and the response has been great. So social media, I've gotten my book, I have blurbs from, on my cover, Dan Pink, Marshall Goldsmith and Nancy Duarte. So that really helped to have that credibility. And inside, I have about 30 other um, um, endorsements, blurbs, other major thought leaders. And so that's been really great. And then people like Peter Winnick, who that's where we met in his thought leaders group, and Bill Sherman. And, and I've been on podcasts with many other friends in that group, like Andy Simon and Nancy Halpern. So through the networking and, and the visibility of meeting people, um, it's really taken off, which has been really nice. Cool. Well, let's end with uh, two other questions that just uh, go into a little bit deeper about what you talked about. Number one, how did you get all those podcasts? And number two, how did you get those reviews from really hard-to-reach people like Dan Pink? Who also yeah. Well, I'll start, I'll I'll start with that one. There's a saying mm-hmm. that the best time to plant a tree if you want shade was 20 years ago, but the next best time is today. Mm-hmm. I started laying the foundation for that literally 10 or 20 years ago. So um, I've been a big reader. Um, People can't see, but I have about one of my claims to fame. You don't even know this yet about me. In 1998, when I was working for, I won't name this company, a major training company, 
I was hired to run their mini MBA program. In the course of doing that, I had to read one management leadership book after another because my background, again, was in Shakespeare and poetry. It was not in business. So um, working with all the experienced, amazing trainers and reading all these books, I started reading one, one a week, then two or three, and I kept going. So some weeks I would read three or five. I think my record was 10. I once read 10 books in one week just to see if I could do it, all business books. But I averaged one business book a week from 1998 to 2018. So I read over 1,000 business books during the 20 years and probably another 100 or so since then. So I'm well over 11 or 1,200. That's when people started saying to me, you've read all these books. When are you going to write your own? Because, mm -hmm. you know, um, so in the course of reading all those books, I would write reviews. So my tips for people are develop those relationships now with no expectation of return. Uh, review their books on Amazon. Gar Reynolds wrote a book, one of my favorite books, The Naked Presenter and Presentation Zen, two of my favorite books on presenting. I wrote him a five-star review. He's an American based in Japan. Two hours later, after the review posted, he sent me a really nice note saying thank you for, you know, for the review. So Dan Pink spoke in New York. I went to his book signing. I intensely waited to be the last person online. So I waited an extra like hour. Um, I got up to the table. He signed it, and he knew my name because we had exchanged LinkedIn and, and Facebook messages over the years. I took a selfie with us, and then when it was time when my book was coming out, um, when I needed the blurbs, I sent him a picture of the two of us holding his book, just to refresh his, visually to visually refresh his memory. And um, he was so kind enough to write me a really nice blurb. So Marshall Goldsmith, I went to three or four of his workshops over the years. He knew me, so that's the key thing. If you just reach out to someone cold and say, "Can you do me a favor?" You're just one of a million people doing that. So the point is establish your brand. Like a book will help you build your brand, but establish your brand, your reputation, and these relationships. And they should be genuine and generous relationships from the beginning. Um, and then when you ask for a favor, it's not as, you know, like what do they want from me or who is this guy? It's literally, oh, I know this person. He's been a follower of mine. They're more likely to do it. So that's what I would advise to people is, you know, be generous. You know, comment on people's LinkedIn posts. You know, retweet their their stuff and then they'll get to know who you are and that's how you become like not necessarily a peer with them um i just recently met dory clark who posted a picture of herself holding my book which is great and um she's she's such an amazing person i was a fan of her work for years again she went out of her way to really um help me get the word out so people if people remember what it was like to be a first-time author they're more generous and will help you you know, and other, and other authors to uh, get their, their books out there into the world. Yeah, great advice. Yeah, Dory uh, is just a wonderful person. I met her at a conference yeah. one year and spoke to her for a few minutes, and I saw her at another conference a year later, and she remembered who I was, which, like, yeah. blew me away that someone in that yeah. stratosphere would actually remember me. We took a picture, and to my website and you know it's, yeah, she, it's, good, it's good PR for both of us so yeah she's the real deal generous. and she practices what she preaches which is great and so does Dan Bank and Marshall Goldsmith and, and a lot of them so um and what was your other question I answered the second uh, one the, first the podcast how did you get on so many podcasts oh um well mainly you know first of all watching other people watch as many podcasts as you can um comment again like comment and share people's podcasts um you know, let, let podcasters know, hey, my book just came out. I'm interested in, it's not, don't position it as, as, hey, can you do me a favor? It's, hey, I have a book. You might be interested in this because this is, it's an interesting twist. Or, and target podcasts where their audiences will benefit from what you're doing. So it's got to be a right fit. So I've been on a number of HR podcasts. I've been on a number that deal with presentation skills or people in the training field or yourself in the book industry. So it's got to be the right fit. And I think that's the key thing is have your stories 
Um, you don't. You always want to have like different stories. You don't want to tell the same story every single time. But think about who you. I always say start with, and that's one of the models of my book is my um, three-legged stool presentation model. Think about who your audience is and what your purpose is. Right? What do you want to get out? And people have two thought bubbles over their head at all times. It's why should I care and what's in it for me. Mm-hmm. So you need to, whatever you say, there's got to be why should I be interested in this and how will this benefit from benefit me. So if you hit both those targets, you're going to get people to be interested in having you on their show. And, and also a lot of podcasters will say, um, oh, you know, who else should I talk to? Who else should I meet? That would be a good guest. I recommend people, and in turn, they recommend me to the ones they're on. And again, it's a mutually... What's nice is it's like you're part of this community, and you really, if you're generous and genuine, people want to help you, and you want to help them. So it's not an exchange of favors. Adam Grant talks about that in his book, Give and Take. You know, it's not givers and takers. It's just be a, you know, be a giver. And, you know, if it comes around, great. If it doesn't, it's just a nice thing to do anyway. So that's part of my philosophy. Fantastic. As we wrap up here, why don't you tell us who your ideal client is and how they can get in touch with you? Sure. Well, my specialty, my day job is doing management leadership training, executive coaching, and consulting. So anyone interested in my visual leadership approach, the best way to connect with me is through LinkedIn. That's number one. Secondly, my brand new website, ToddChurches.com, just launched uh, a few weeks ago. I still have my company is called Big Blue Gumball, so I still have my Big Blue Gumball company website, but ToddChurches.com focuses on my speaking and on my book. So I actually have both um, both brands going on. So, um, yeah, and, and the way to get my book is anywhere books are sold, Amazon or, or anywhere else. And the name of your book is? Visual Leadership. It's actually one word with a single shared capital L. So it's Visual Leadership, one word. And I actually got a U.S. patent. The patent office rejected it the first two times, and the third time was a charm. So I actually have a... Visual leadership as a word is it now a registered trademark um, and also the title of my book. And also the subtitle is Leveraging the Power of Visual Thinking in Leadership and in Life. So it is not just a business or management book. It's about how you could use visual thinking in every aspect of your life. Like my mother read it and she said, oh, I thought it was going to be like just a boring business book. And I loved all the stories. So if my mother loves it, you'll love it. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you, Todd. Dan, thank you so much. It was great. Great talking to you. Thanks for listening to Write Your Book in a Flash with Dan Janelle, the only podcast that shows you exactly how people just like you have built their businesses by writing a book. If you'd like to write your book but don't know where to start, you can find great information at writeyourbookinaflash.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with another insightful interview to help you become a top business leader.